How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Saturday, October 28, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It took a little over three weeks, despite these tumultuous times, but House Republicans found their man. Mike Johnson of Louisiana is the new House Speaker. He didn't come with the same baggage as McCarthy. He didn't come with the same baggage as, uh, as Steve Scalise. And because he was so far off the radar, he didn't have much of a record in that sense. I'm Jared Halpern. It doesn't have to be an odd number year for voters to give us data. Virginians are casting ballots. Governor Yunkin is, I think, generally relatively popular. I mean, I guess polls sort of sort of vary on that, but you know, his approval rating is is is, is positive. It's just a question of sort of how positive it is um, across the polls. This is the Fox News rundown from Washington. Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana was first elected to the House in 2016. While he previously served briefly in the State House, he was before that an attorney with the Alliance Defense Fund, now the Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian legal rights group. Mr. Speaker, that is a nice ring to it, by the way. <laughs> Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise, who withdrew his name from the speakership race after not having enough support, showed there were no hard feelings after a bit of a messy process. Mr. Speaker, I offer privilege resolution to notify the Senate of the election of Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House of Representatives and ask for its immediate consideration. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, who also failed after three voting rounds to get enough support, praised Johnson. Democrats were highly critical and revealed the names of the 18 Republicans in districts President Biden won who voted to support Johnson whom they called a MAGA extremist who supports an abortion ban. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries has said as much, but also said this past Thursday at his weekly press conference about Johnson. I found him to be an able and capable adversary from the standpoint of the authentically held positions that he would articulate, even when there was strong disagreement on our side of the aisle. But there were also opportunities where we were able to find common ground, including uh, on criminal justice reform legislation. We'll see where there may be other areas of common ground and if that includes the president's request for over $100 million to fund Indo-Pacific interests, the border, Ukraine and Israel. After he sealed the deal, reporters wanted to know about his thoughts on an issue he'd previously voted against. Mr. Speaker, do you support additional aid to Ukraine? We all do. There, uh, we're going to have conditions on that, so we're working through it. What, what, kind, of conditions? Conditions? what kind of conditions? We want accountability and, and, uh, and, and we want objectives that are clear from the White House. But we're going to have those discussions. They're going to be very productive. So after California Congressman Kevin McCarthy got the boot and Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise couldn't nab the votes, how did someone like Mike Johnson, that far from leadership, get it done? He did it simply because he was not someone who was too close to the leadership. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. 
He was mm -hmm. in a, a lower rung leadership position, but he was somebody who was pretty conservative. He actually had a plan uh, to fund the government because they realized that they're going to deal with this uh, immediately. He's got a couple of different options that, that people seem to like. And he just wasn't Kevin McCarthy. He didn't come with the same baggage as McCarthy. He didn't come with the same baggage as, uh, as Steve Scalise. And because he was so far off the radar, he didn't have much of a record in that sense. He has a legislative record, and we can talk about that. But uh, that seemed to impress people. He just didn't have these uh, political barnacles on him that seemed to weigh down people like uh, Tom Emmer, who was the nominee of the majority whip for about four hours, or weigh down uh, Steve Scalise, who was the nominee for 30 hours, or Jim Jordan, kind of the, the toxicity that Jordan brought to the table that really turned a lot of his colleagues uh, off against him. Uh, they didn't like these strong arm tactics and thought that that really, uh, you know, I mean, they felt threatened by him. Uh, their spouses got uh, nasty text messages. Uh, there were legitimate death threats against members. And they just said, you know, that's not the guy. Mike Johnson is not that guy. In fact, you know, as I kind of put it, he's a little bit like a Mike Pence, somebody who's very conservative and maybe even more conservative than Mike Pence, frankly. But, uh, you know, kind of comes at it with a smile a little bit and doesn't have those uh, those sharp elbows. Mm. It's interesting that that's your conclusion, because I'd seen some people saying this is so, so this is the guy. Right. Like, Why did it take if you guys were all so happy to support him so quickly? Um, then why did it take y'all so long to, to, to get there? Well, sometimes members have to kind of just calibrate and see what the options are on the table. And they kept going to the next obvious choices, people who had, uh, you know, who were already in line for this, uh, Steve Scalise. I mean, there was a last ditch effort toward the end there uh, by some members. And some people believe, including Ralph Norman, Republican from South Carolina, that there was an orchestrated effort by Kevin McCarthy to get him back in the mix and maybe uh, throw Mike Johnson under the bus. In the private meeting uh, the night before the speaker's vote, uh, there was a ballot where 43 people voted essentially for Kevin McCarthy. Now, we don't know who those people are, and everybody supported Mike Johnson on the floor. But the other reason that was in play here, Jessica, is because people were exhausted, absolutely exhausted. And had they not elected Mike Johnson or someone, sometimes someone is better than nobody. And so this was the someone here they were probably going to either go back to the drawing board and have another week or two of, of infighting, or two, probably have to adopt a resolution that David Joyce, the Republican from Ohio, had to temporarily elect the Speaker pro tem at the time, Patrick okay. McHenry. And if you elect a Speaker pro tem, he can perform just like the Speaker in the House can reopen and you can vote on legislation and do the usual things that the House does. And so they were pretty close to doing that. And that was not a preferred option by many, um, although there's precedent for it and, and you can do it and, and it's, it's completely legal and within House rules. But um, uh, a lot of people said, yeah, let's re we'd rather have a speaker. OK, so you say, Chad, he had fewer barnacles, but he certainly has a record. Let's as you reference, let's talk about it a little bit. We're reading about his feelings about things like abortion and Ukraine aid, mm -hmm. but also just generally appropriations, because that's the that's the big that's the big thing hanging over all of them, right? Not just November 17th, but getting getting through this, the fighting over spending levels. Yeah. And, and I want to see what this looks like. I mean, there was one Republican source I spoke with who said they didn't think it was going to be a big fight in the coming days, this interim mm -hmm. spending bill. How many Republicans said that, oh, they were against CRs? A, a CR is a continuing resolution that simply renews all the new funding for a short period of time. It's an interim spending bill. 
And what they're going to have to do is a CR. It's just not that, you know, Mike Johnson hasn't done a CR yet. Um, I I think that there is a a, a bit of um, space that they're giving him. You know, I hate to use the the term honeymoon here, but they're willing to give him a little bit of time to kind of work this out. And again, I I think it was just the idea that Mike Johnson was was somebody who they viewed as, as quite conservative somebody who was aligned with the uh, the pro-MAGA movement, aligned yeah. with former President Trump. That's kind of where most of the House of Representatives is now, sometimes at its own peril. Uh, but that's where they are. And so they wanted somebody like yeah. that. And, and, and you could say that Kevin McCarthy was, frankly, to that point. I mean, he he ran down to Mar-a-Lago two weeks after the riot and, and supported President Trump in lockstep. But then again, you know, he was criticized for working with Democrats to keep the government open and working on the debt ceiling right. deal. Of course, Mike Johnson's going to have to do that in a couple of weeks. And so you know, they're going to level some criticism right away. I, I just I just don't know. You know. Matt Gates said that. I mean, as we know, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida was the one who sort of pushed all of this to happen, really, um, uh, by, by, you know, executing on the motion to vacate the chair mm-hmm. with that one vote. Um, but but he said that Mike Johnson being the speaker shows where the power of the Republican Party is. And he called him MAGA Mike Johnson. Um, yeah. Is is that what this means? Is, is Gates correct? He is right in that sense. And uh, the Democrats have certainly picked up on that because they think that there is a vulnerability there. They are going to make sure that the American voter knows who Mike Johnson is. Hmm. Uh, talking about his vote against uh, certifying the uh, election in 2020. Uh, he might not have worked as hand in glove with former President Trump on some of the election strategies uh, as Jim Jordan did. But, uh, you know, it was pretty close to some of that. He was not mentioned or issued subpoenas in the uh, by the one six committee mentioned in the report right. that they put together about the riot. But, uh, but but it's not like he was, you know, above the fray here at all. I mean, he, he was he was part of this. Um, so I think that's something they're going to work on. And this is where I had asked when we didn't have a speaker, Susan Delbonet. She is the Democratic representative from Washington State and chairs the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. She's in charge of the Democrats uh, election uh, efforts in the House of Representatives in 2024. And I said, do, do the ads kind of write themselves is what I said. And this is again before <laughs> Mike Johnson. And she said, well, when I have tape of them all saying we're in chaos, we are in chaos. She said, what, you know, what do I have to do? Not a lot. Now, she has pointed out and started to point out, and so has Hakeem Jeffries, that, uh, you know, there is a track record here. And I talk about the barnacles. He doesn't have the same barnacles on the Republican side of the aisle, but to the average voter, to the Democratic voter, to the swing voter, the suburban voter, voters that Republicans need to get, are those barnacles going to weigh Mike Johnson and probably the Republican Party writ large down when they start to learn more and more about him? I mean, the Democrats, they seemed pretty happy that they had defeated uh, Jim Jordan because that would have been a gift to them. But I think they, they didn't think that he would be able to govern. I think they're willing to, to, to allow Mike Johnson the ability to govern, but they're going to use that as a foil. You need in politics a foil. And in the same way that Republicans for years talked about Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, and, and demonized her and weaponized her, and sometimes to, to great success, certainly the 2010, the historic election where um, Democrats lost the House spectacularly and uh, the Republicans picked up 63 seats. OK, good yeah. example of that. They'll do that again and, and they'll turn to these members who represent these swing districts 
Remember, there are 18 Republicans in districts that President Biden carried. And they will say, can you believe that Congressman so-and-so voted for Mike Johnson for speaker? Do you know what that means on abortion? Do you know what that means on democracy and the election and the certification? You get the idea. I have a question about that, Chad, before we move on to House business briefly. But the notion that Mike Johnson um, supported Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, um, mostly in a, in a legal sense when he challenged it mm-hmm. in a Texas lawsuit, right? Um, and in, now, a, in a vote on the floor. The, the and, right, in a vote on the floor. The but I'm, yeah. I'm also talking about behind the scenes as well, since we established that already. But hey, the, the, there are some pieces now being written about, you know, the, the implications for having a Mike Johnson as speaker and what that means for 2024. I think the Washington mm-hmm. Post is theorizing, what if what if there needs to be a House session to work out a scenario in which no presidential candidate has enough electoral college votes due to a third party? Mm-hmm. And and so now mm-hmm. you need a, a House session. Are these fair questions to ask right now about like the implications of Mike Johnson in 2024? Or is that too far to go? Yeah, certainly, because this is the direction that our presidential elections are going. If you look at the Florida election dispute in 2000, there was an effort. And this is all part of the process and was part of the law. Part of the law has been changed now, but in the Constitution and in the law, the Electoral Count Act, which dates back to the 18, uh, 1880s, 1890s, uh, that talks about the House and the Senate having this formal rule to certify the election. There was an effort to try to have them throw out the Florida ballots, uh, the Florida electoral votes in 2000. Big mm. kerfuffle on the floor, couldn't get it to the Senate. Okay, didn't happen. Go to 2004, really January of 2005, when they're certifying that election. There was a question about Ohio's slate. And they actually, for the first time at the presidential level, took up the issue and both the House and Senate debated Ohio's slate, came back and said, no, President George W. Bush defeated John Kerry and got Ohio's electoral votes. Mm. Okay, so this was pretty sleepy during the Obama years. Um, A little more of this in January of 2017, because Democrats questioned without nearly as much merit, frankly, uh, much merit at all in the other examples here about the, the legitimacy of uh, former President Trump's victory. And then you get to 2021. And we know what happened, you know, in January with the riot. So the reason this is important is how will he go through this process? What they have done, uh, and they did this uh, in legislation late last year, and it's now law, is tightened up that old 19th century Electoral Count Act, defined the role of the vice president. You know, there's a question about this, about Mike Pence, who really right. presides, you know, over over the uh, uh, the election. Uh, so that is made a little more clear here. But if you have somebody who voted like Mike Johnson and supported some of these, what some perceived as extra constitutional efforts uh, with the former President Trump and some of the tactics that they could employ on the floor, uh, that's a question. Now, you bring up a really interesting question. You said the House. What happens if this goes to the House? Now, what we're referring to there is what we call a contingent election. And that's happened twice. That's how we elected Thomas Jefferson. Well, well, that's interesting. But I think that's why why I'm curious, right? It's because it does seem so rare. So are we worried about nothing yet? Yeah. Yeah. And then John Quincy Adams. Well, Well, that's the reason I start to set this stage of how we've had these debates over the past 20 years where this has increasingly become a congressional question uh, of debating these slates of electors in the House and the Senate, like what happened in 2001, what happened after Ohio in January of 05. You get the idea. So 
So if you can't work it out there, which what they've done in these certifications. So in 2005, they said, yeah, Ohio was fine. What they eventually did after the riot was over and they cleared the building is they came back into session and they went through two states. But they said, yes, we, we vote in favor of those two states. And we believe that uh, President Biden won. So if you can't get that sorted out in the Electoral College, you go to these so-called contingent elections. Jefferson won this way in 1801. Uh, John Quincy Adams won this way in 1825. And this is prescribed in the Constitution that what happens is you pitch the election into the House of Representatives and the House votes by state delegation, by state delegation, one vote per. So in other words, California gets the same as North Dakota. So this is where it gets really squirrely. What is the role of the speaker? And this is where you start to say, well, Republicans have a lot of these one uh, member states. You know, look at the Dakotas, Uh, you know, Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota. Both of them are Republicans. So that's going to count as much as the 50 plus members from California, which is going to lean in in the direction of the Democrats. Um, Oh, but the Republicans, they lost Alaska. Uh, You now have Mary Peltola, who is the Democratic representative there. So that was a Republican seat dating back to 1973. That's in Democratic hands now. And so the thing that we have to watch, if we really think that's going to be the direction it goes, is number one, we don't know the disposition of Speaker Johnson, number one. Number two, we don't know the makeup of the state delegations until we get through that midterm election and they swear people in. And number three, we do not know whether or not Mike Johnson or somebody else will be the Speaker of the House because they do this when? On January 6th. That's when they settle the Electoral College and the new Congress is sworn in on the 3rd of January. And so Democrats might be able to say this to their voters who are interested in democracy and say, do you want Mike Johnson potentially presiding over the House if it goes uh, into the House of Representatives like it did with John Quincy Adams and Thomas Jefferson? So that's why Democrats think they can make a compelling case Mm -hmm. on the macro level to win the House back next year. All right, Chad. So briefly, it's so interesting. I love how you just know everything. Okay. So just briefly then, House business can restart and, and has. And obviously, top of mind is the geopolitical tension we're seeing all, all across the world. I mean, President Biden has asked for over $100 billion of funding relating to pretty much everything, the border, Israel, Taiwan, the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. Ukraine, um, even, I guess, replenishing our own stockpiles as it relates to Ukraine. Where are we going now with, with this and, and the, the notion that some people think these should be separate items and not lumped in together? Where's Mr. Johnson on all of this? Well, he has opposed money for Ukraine in the past. That's his voting record. So that's the first thing. Uh, most Republicans have said they think that these issues should be considered separately. There was a vote on a much, much smaller amount of money for Ukraine that was not really paid attention to just before they voted to fund the government in late September and the whole Kevin McCarthy a hullabaloo, uh, where you had a wide coalition of, of 311 members in the House of Representatives, Democrats and Republicans who voted for money for Ukraine. There were more you know, Democrats than Republicans and more Republicans voted no on that than voted yes. It was kind of a, a split, but pretty close there. So that's going to be a question about the money for Ukraine. Now, the other interesting thing that is starting to happen is on the Democratic side of the aisle where you have some Democrats who are starting to ask questions about why should Israel get all this money? And you had the resolution. The first thing that they did out of the block when they were actually able to vote again, thanks to Speaker Johnson, 
on uh, condemning Hamas, resolution to condemn ha Hamas and stand by Israel. Well, the first thing that you noticed about this is that there were a total of, uh, you know, 15 lawmakers who voted either present or voted against the bill. And most of them were, were Democrats. And you're starting to see a slight schism there among some of these uh, Democrats about supporting Israel. Uh, I talked to one Democratic source who said to me that, hey, you know, th these anti-Israel voices who just aren't going to stand behind Israel lockstep all the time might be a little more disposed to the Palestinians or, or whatnot. Uh, they were always there. They just have a bigger voice now and they have a bigger voice and there's more of them now, number, number two, and it couldn't be at a more inopportune time if you're for Israel. So that's going to be an issue in the Democratic Party. Uh, Josh Gottheimer, the Democratic representative from New Jersey, absolutely ripped his Democratic colleagues. He called them despicable. This is Democrat on Democrat violence here, mind you. And then you go talk to somebody like uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal, uh, the Democrat from Washington state, very progressive. Mm -hmm. uh, she indicated that uh, that she you know, previously was, was, was you know, more aligned, obviously, or supported what Israel was doing. But then if you look at the way the resolution was worded, she voted present because she says, I don't I don't think that this actually you know, says what we need to be saying right now about Israel. And so there is mm -hmm. a there is a divide in that sense. And then, of course, this is going to be loaded with other politics. You had Rashida Tlaib, the Democratic representative, Palestinian-American from Michigan. She supported this big rally where more than 300 protesters were arrested in the Cannon House office building, one of the biggest demonstrations I've ever seen, very loud, and said that, oh, you know, she should be censured by the House of Representatives. And there's actually going to be a resolution on the floor in the next few days because of her support for that rally. I talked to Alyssa Slotkin, Democrat from Michigan, about this. And she said, well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who sponsored the resolution, really shouldn't be talking about this because you know, she was the person talking about Jewish space lasers a couple of years ago. And she said, I, I wouldn't exactly see this as being a consistent position. Somebody who is a, a, a friend of, of, of the Jewish people here uh, to go, uh, you know, go after uh, Congresswoman Tlaib on that particular issue just because she, you know, supported this uh, this rally against Israel in the Cannon Building. So um, that's kind of what we're back to doing now that we have a Speaker of the House. I, I guess what that means, Jessica, is, is Congress is back to normal. <laughs> Congress is back because everybody's fighting again. Because everybody's fighting doing, speaker, they're fighting all the other stuff. Yes, everybody's doing the whataboutism. All right, Fox's chief congressional correspondent Chad Fergram, thanks for joining. My pleasure. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders, no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Polling can tell folks like me hungry for any piece of information about an electorate some helpful information, but nothing tells us more than election results. And that's why Virginia is so important right now. In more recent history, the state has certainly shifted from purple to a deeper shade of blue. But the Commonwealth elected Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin just two years ago. And this year, the entire state house is up for grabs. 
Republicans are hopeful that a focus on crime and education can clinch them full control of Richmond. Democrats are making abortion and restrictions now considered in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. Kyle Kondik is managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at Where Else? The University of Virginia's Center for Politics. I asked him what he'll be watching and what we can learn heading into 2024. Well, for election analysts, you know, in, in, in odd numbered years, there isn't a whole lot to look at, you know, particularly if you're if you want, you know, races at the state at the state state or, or federal level. You know, there's no regularly scheduled you know federal elections in in, uh, in odd numbered years uh, unless you've got, you know, special elections, which you usually have a handful every, every year or so. Um, you know, I, I think Virginia sometimes gets a lot of attention in part because it 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 holds its uh, gubernatorial election in odd numbered years, and also its um, all of its state legislative elections in odd numbered years, in, in, including this one. There's no governor's race on the ballot, but all the uh, 140 seats in the state legislature are on the ballot. And also, you know, I think Virginia's proximity to Washington probably also plays a role in the coverage. You know, if we were talking about like Oregon or Washington State, I kind of wonder if it would get as much attention. I do think there is kind of a there can be kind of like an East Coast bias. Uh, we love drivable and, you know, distances. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I, mean, I do think that that's probably part of it. And look, I mean, I, I work uh, for the University of Virginia. We, we try to pay, you know, a little extra attention to our home state. But again, I think there's also, you know, there's there's just a, a kind of a, 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 a East Coast kind of component to it. But it, is, it does end up being kind of a testing ground for certain messages. I don't think that there's a great case that um, these odd numbered year elections are necessarily predictive of the following year. You know, frankly, in 2021, what we saw in Virginia gubernatorial race and even in New Jersey's was um, that really looked like a red wave kind of environment. And we did have a red wave kind of environment in certain states and during the midterm. But a lot of the states that are sort of most electorally important um, were, really were not, you know, red waves. You wouldn't say that about like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin or Arizona or Georgia or Nevada. You know, there was a mixed bag or even a lot of Democratic success in those states. Um, so I, I would caution that whatever ends up happening in Virginia, um, and in the other handful of states that are having, you know, notable state level elections, I wouldn't necessarily project it forward. Um, it's a useful data point. Um, but remember, we're only, you know, we're only at the halfway point between the midterm and the next presidential election. We've got a whole primary season to get through. We've got a whole campaign to run for president next year. Um, and things may very well be different. You know, one one obvious way in which the environment changed from 2021 to 2022, the last time we were looking very closely at Virginia, you know, we had the Dobbs decision in summer of 2022 that I think pretty clearly did change the political environment. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, maybe something happens between now and uh, next November that that changes things and um, maybe makes, uh, um, uh, you know, maybe makes the, the political environment different. You know, and you mentioned that that election, that 2021 election in Virginia, obviously a lot made of uh, the governor, uh, Glenn Young, and the Republican winning uh, that election, making education uh, really a central part of his pitch, particularly to those sort of, I don't know if you want to call them sort of soft Republican voters, soft Democratic voters, kind of in the D.C. suburbs in northern Virginia. Um, he is not on the ballot, as you point out. But is this kind of a referendum on, on sort of what his first two years in office have been for, for, for Virginians? I don't know about that. You know, I feel like, um, 
you know, Governor Yunkin is, I think, generally relatively popular. I mean, I guess polls sort of sort of vary on that, but you know, his approval rating is is is, is positive. It's just a question of sort of how positive it is um, across the polls. Um, but also, he. Um, uh, it, you know, again, he is not on the ballot. Um, and I also think the political circumstances have changed some yeah. uh, in that, you know, we're, we're further away from COVID. Um, we are. Uh, and, and I think that, that some of the maybe success that, that Young can had with that um, uh, with with education as an issue may have been more directly related to COVID. And so that's sort of further in the in the, mm-hmm. in the rear mirror. Um, you know, Terry McAuliffe, I think, made a few mistakes in his, in his democratic uh, gubernatorial campaign that maybe um, helped Youngkin make that argument. Um, so again, it's just, it's just a different set of circumstances. Yeah. And uh, again, the abortion issue is so much more prominent now than it was back in 2021. Cause again, of course that was yeah. um, before the, the Dobbs ruling. Well, I think you and I have even talked about that that election may go a different direction. Had Dobbs come down before the, uh, the Virginia gubernatorial race. Yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, again, it was a two-point race, uh, and yeah. um, you know, the 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 races for the you know just the state house, not the state senate, was was on the ballot in um, in in, in twenty twenty one. So you know, it could have been a different outcome. But again, you don't you don't get to you don't get to run these elections with different variables, <laughs> and you don't get to you don't get to change the calendar. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure that Terry McAuliffe wishes that the Virginia gubernatorial race had been now or last year, as opposed to 2021, but that's just how it it worked out. And um, I also don't want to take away anything from, uh, you know, from the governor and and, uh, the other Republicans who won in 2021. It was, it was impressive given, um, uh, given the fact that Virginia, I think has become a democratic leaning state, at least in federal elections. Mm -hmm. uh, And yet they were still able to, you know, to, to, to win in uh, 2021. I do want to talk a little bit more about Yunkin, because obviously, in as much as he has resisted, uh, you know, the, the talk that he may be kind of a last minute entry into the uh, presidential field. Um, listen, he is uh, a figure who certainly rose uh, to, to the top tier there because of his win as Virginia governor. He seems to be really invested in these uh, legislative races as he tries to get uh, a, a Republican uh, coalition in place. So if so, is there kind of like a, a, a view on him as far as, you know, if he's able to to get Republicans across the finish line, do national Republicans look at Glenn Youngkin and say, I don't know, maybe this is the guy. This is the type of Republican that can win in, in states like Virginia and maybe other kind of, uh, I don't know, purplish kind of states. Uh, it would certainly be a feather in, in the governor's cap if he could, um, you know, if his party could win both chambers of the state legislature. Uh, obviously, that would make his last two years in office, uh, you know, he can't run for re-election in right. 2025, but would make his uh, uh, his tenure more impactful. He could, um, you know, just just get more of the things he wants to get, you know, to, to, to do, uh, to actually get them done. You know, there has been a lot of presidential buzz with Youngkin. I, I don't, I, I think that winning the, the state legislature would be, you know, obviously impactful for Virginia, and I think would, would get notice among kind of really plugged in kind of elite Republicans who, who really like the governor. Um, I don't necessarily know if, you know, rank and file Republicans really are all that keyed into what's going on in state legislative races in a state like Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump is so far ahead in the presidential race that um, I just don't know if there's much oxygen for uh, a late entrant in Yunkin or really for anyone other than than Trump. My guess is if Yunkin were to get in, um, 
he would be just as reliant as everyone else is on Trump having some sort of implosion. And then, you know, then the party's looking around for and voters are looking around for someone to pick up the pieces. It's not guaranteed that that would happen. But um, I don't think that Youngkin would come in and immediately start polling at some big number. And, and that's a good point as we kind of look at the Republican field. Right. I mean, the advantage that Trump has right now, do you see this as an open primary or is this kind of settled? I mean, you know, look, I mean, there's there's a very obvious and clear front runner in Trump and, you know, other people are running. Um, the You know, Trump does have these legal problems. Um, you know, maybe it's possible that, that his support is is soft in some way. And, you know, maybe that'll manifest itself as we um, get into the primary season. But, um, you know, th- there there is not there's not someone who is like a strong challenger to Trump. I mean, Ron DeSantis was that. You know, six, six, six or more months ago. Um, but he, you know, he's he's faded and no one has really took his place as a, um, you know, someone who can be, you know, pull in, you know, 30 percent of the vote or something like that. And of course, Trump's generally pulling 50 percent or more. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just don't I just don't see a lot of uh, a lot of oxygen for other candidates. Again, maybe maybe that changes. And um, but but that's just not the case as we're talking here now. It would take a significant event to change the landscape. I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. So as you look at Virginia, where do you put it? On, I mean, is that a state that you think is in play in 2024? I mean, for Democrats, it better not be, because if Virginia is truly in play, it probably says something pretty negative about uh, where Democrats are performing nationally, because Virginia is a state that has moved into voting um, you know, I think voting to, to, to the left of the country mm-hmm. in, in, at, in, at the federal level, uh, you know, Joe Biden won it by 10 points, which was a, a very impressive performance for a Democrat. But, you know, demographically, it's the sort of state that's moved against Republicans in recent years. You know, Republicans have picked up, uh, at, you know, have improved their position in certain places, certainly like in Ohio or in Iowa uh, or some of the other states of the Midwest that maybe had a little bit of a Democratic lean for president and now are are you know, very, very competitive, be it like a, you know, Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. Um, so again, if, if, if a state like Virginia really was a, a toss up for president next year, which I don't think it is, but mm. if it was, I think that would probably be broadly part of a, of, of a Republican presidential victory. And is it still comes down? I mean, is the, the sort of area that, that matters the most as we look maybe at these results uh, in uh, November, it's all the D.C. suburbs. Is that kind of where Virginia's decided, has been decided? Uh, I wouldn't. I mean, in, in these state legislative races, I mean, you've got key districts across the, you know, across the most populous parts of the state. You know, there are key races in the Hampton Roads area. There are key races uh, in the Richmond suburbs. And there are key races in uh, in northern Virginia, particularly places that are that are further away from Washington, D.C., um, like uh, like Loudoun County, Prince William County. Um, and then, you know, more directly south of Washington in, in Fredericksburg, which is sort of a newly emerging um, battlefield uh, within within the state. So, um, you know, there's not really a whole lot that's competitive, you know, outside of those three big urban areas, but that's where the, you know, that's where the lion's share of the state population is. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of those places are, are, are places to watch, you know, west of Richmond, you're talking about, you know, there are a few little blue pockets mm-hmm. like, like Charlottesville where UVA is, um, but a lot of it has become very, very Republican and, and the districts as currently drawn, there really aren't any top tier battlegrounds, um, you know, again, 
really outside of those big population areas. But, um, you know, in, at the state level, um, it's, you know, a question of like, uh, you know, how, cl how close do Democrats keep it in Virginia Beach, which is like a Republican leaning swing area? Um, how, can Republicans, you know, hold down the Democratic margins in places like Loudoun and Prince William? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of different pieces to, to the puzzle here. But uh, and, and of course, you know, when you've got, you know, 100 House districts and 40 state Senate mm -hmm. districts, and there's like, you know, 10 to 15 really competitive house districts and um, maybe about half a dozen, depending on who you ask in the in the state Senate. Um, you know, those are the races that are going to decide who has the majorities and, and they're, they're scattered across the state. Well, it's certainly going to be something to watch, at least for those of us that are so, you know, looking for any single data point we, we can get our hands on. And so we'll, we'll be following that race, uh, those races very closely and, and with your help as well. Kyle Connick, always appreciate it. You are as tapped into Virginia politics as anybody I know. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, we're taking a look at the southern border as lawmakers grow more concerned about the possibility of terrorists entering the U.S. And President Biden won't be on New Hampshire's primary ballot in 2024, but a Democratic congressman challenging him will be. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.